but if we move beyond that kind of textbook version, like the really short um, crystallized version of U.S. history, we can see that removal is kind of baked into the way that um, you know people are thinking about the nation from the beginning. This is the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Uh, this is Eric Loomis, and today I'm very happy to uh, have a conversation with Samantha Seeley, who is an associate professor of history at the University of Richmond. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about her book um, that came out in 2021, uh, race removal and the right to remain migration and the making of the United States, uh, which was published by the university of North Carolina press. Um, I think about half the books I do for this podcast are published by UNC, which probably means you all should go peruse the UNC catalog. Um, and th- this book won, uh, several prizes, um, uh, including the Merle Curdy prize, uh, for best book in American social history, which is a pretty, pretty significant book, but, uh, excuse me, significant prize. Um, but I, in some ways, uh, uh, you know, um, receiving honorable mention for the Raleigh Prize from the Organization of American Historians uh, is is a pretty significant thing too, and the book's really great. Um, and so we're happy to have Samantha here and to talk about this. Um, so welcome, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. Would you start by talking about the book and just uh, giving our readers a little bit of an overview? Sure. Well, um, I like to start by thinking about how I came to it because it's a little bit of a circuitous path, if you don't mind. So. Um, when I first started thinking about this book project, I started with a source, which I think is a common experience for historians um, to begin with the sources and with the archives. And I was working with this set of petitions that I had found in a footnote. Um, and it was a set of petitions from free African-Americans living in Virginia who were petitioning for the right to remain in Virginia um, in, you know, uh, basically for an exception to this law that was passed um, and, and put into effect in 1806 that said that free people, once they were emancipated, had to leave the state within a year. And so people were petitioning, like writing these kind of long petitions to the state legislature to ask for an exception to that law, um, to ask for their right to remain. And the petitions themselves were these really beautiful um, articulations of what, what it meant to um, stay in one's home, close to one's connections and family, um, patrons, communities. And it got me thinking about all of the ways in which many people actually experienced removal in the early U.S. Republic. Um, and that, I think, for me, immediately kind of went, uh, you know, in a different direction from what I had thought of as the kind of dominant narrative of the early national period, um, this kind of 50-year period um, after the, the end of the American Revolution, which is that, you know, from the kind of beginnings of the discipline itself as like an academic discipline in the late 19th century, the dominant story had been that this is a period of free migration of um, settlers moving to the frontier. And that's kind of what, you know, I think is still the popular narrative of the period um, and, you know, shows up in a lot of uh, kind of popular scholarship as well as academic scholarship too. And so it really made me think differently about that predominant narrative. Um, and so the book, you know, its first goal is really to kind of flip that script and look at the idea of removal instead of free movement. Um, and to think about, you know, how removal was kind of central to state making in this uh, time period. And so 
Um, you know, I think I'm kind of flipping the script upside down by looking at all these different projects of removal, like um, planned buffer states or colonization, um, Indian removal. And these projects were also often racialized, so they disproportionately impacted um, free African-Americans and indigenous people too. So um, that's the kind of focus of the book is on putting all these different disparate projects together um, that I think historians haven't really seen under the covers of the same um, book before. What many people wanted um, as a result, you know, because removal was so predominant in this time period, what many people wanted was actually the right to remain. So the other part of the book is looking at this kind of counterforce, which is if removal was um, you know, this prevailing project by white elites um, and states. Um, in contrast to that, free African-Americans and indigenous people were constantly kind of pushing back for to secure the right to remain in a variety of ways that were both individual and collective um, and, you know, could be uh, legal efforts in the courthouse or um, making war against U.S. invading um, armed forces um, negotiate diplomatic negotiations. So all of these ways in which people were kind of trying to collectively or individually secure the power to stay in their homes. And so the book is really mapping out those two concepts over this 50 year period from the 1770s, um, to the 18, 1820s, really 60 year period. I, you know, and, uh, and you do, you do it incredibly effectively. And it, it was one of these books and, and I, and I, I suspect you see the, you know, you sometimes see this too, where, you read a new book, right? And you're just sort of surprised that this is the first time somebody's done this. Like it seems like such a an obvious comparison that would have so historians would have picked up on a long time ago, right? But that's not the case, right? You know, in, in some ways that's the power of the book, in that you're telling the story that instantly makes sense in my head. And then I'm kind of like, why didn't historians pick up on this before? So, I mean, do you have any thought, be, you know, having now written a kind of a groundbreaking book, does it surprise you that it was groundbreaking? Like, does it surprise you that other historians hadn't picked up on this earlier? Well, that's incredibly kind. I never would have described um, the things that I do as groundbreaking. So I like, I like that word. That's very, that's very generous of you. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of scholars have started to put together indigenous history and African-American history in really productive ways. So I'll just start by saying that, you know, you can't write a first book like this without relying on the incredible scholarship in both fields and, um, you know, the ways that scholars already in the past several decades have started to put the two fields in conversation um, together. So there's just amazing work to kind of rely on. And, um, you know, what I think I was trying to do that was a little bit different is that a lot of that scholarship that's weaving together those two experiences and trying to kind of map them in place has looked south rather than north. Um, so I think what's different here is that I'm not looking at the um, kind of conjoined forces of the expansion of slavery and Indian removal. So like a lot of Southern historians have um, said, you know, Indian removal in the South really happened in service of the expansion of slavery and the cotton frontier. Um, and so that's a kind of story that a lot of historians know, and it's, you know, ingrained in the way that we teach the early 19th century at this point, um, or I hope it is. Um, so this was, you know, my effort to kind of move the story a little bit further north and say, um, you know, like there's a different dynamic at work here, but the stories are still intertwined um, and, and we need to see the stories as intertwined. So in the book, I look at the middle states, which is this kind of geographic area that, you know, it wasn't that's not a super common designation for the time period. Um, 
the middle states. But I think it makes a lot of sense because it's this kind of region that was knit together by a lot of commonly traveled routes, like the um, the Ohio River in particular. Um, and you know, the middle states is a place where removal happened with a lot of kind of ferocity and force in those in in the early national period, like. I would say it's like one of the, you know, the kind of epicenters for seeing these conjoined forces of Indian removal and African-American colonization. Like it, it kind of made sense to go there. And the story looks a little bit different um, further north. But, you know, it's that's, I think, what what is uh, what's really different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I have a lot of questions, uh, they, Some, you know, some which are directly about the book and some which are kind of just stuff that made me think of. But I guess. um you know, I'm not sure that the everyday reader slash listener might have considered that the centrality of free movement to American history. And so could you just talk a little bit in a broad sense about how that's so important? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that comes out of the sources themselves. So, like, if you look back at the sources from the immediate post-revolutionary period, all of these commentators who are situated on the um, kind of edges of U.S. settlement um, are commenting on the numbers of people who are migrating west in this time period, and um, so, so that's one thing. It's just the the way that commentators kind of fold this into the narrative of American democracy right from the beginning. Like it's something that is central to um, that that seems really unique to the United States in the time period itself. Um, so, like someone who is stationed at Fort Pitt in Western Pennsylvania um, is kind of watching these um, people pass through on their way to what's now Ohio um, and commenting on the kind of, you know, hundreds of people that he's seeing over the course of time um, making this journey west. So it's certainly there in the archives and in the sources. And then, um, you know, there's a way in which free movement itself was central to state making. So it's central to the way that state government was formed. There's There, are pop, there were population requirements for the creation of new states. Um, you know, that had to reach a kind of certain threshold before they um, before they were able to, um, you know, create a state itself. Um, and, you know, free movement was also the kind of engine of settlement, which um, the federal government was completely dependent upon for its own finances. So, um, you know, in the early national period, the U.S. government um, was, you know, heavily in debt to domestic and foreign creditors from the American Revolution. And they saw the West, like this kind of um, territory that had not that they had not yet divided into a series of states as a great, quote unquote, fund for the nation. So their vision was to harness the power of individual people to sell off those lands to large speculators who would then kind of divide it up into sellable portions um, and you know, they would harness the power of these individual people who who had this kind of great thirst for land um, in order to fund the national government. So this whole story of free movement really starts in the time period. And then it gets laced into academic scholarship. Um, you know, this is the Frederick Jackson Turner <laughs> significance of the frontier um, kind of story that that I think continues as the kind of dominant story of the early national period today. Of course, the flip side of free movement and what I'm trying to do in the book is to show that, um, you know, all of that hunger, all that land hunger 
um, that people are writing about at the time in the 1780s um, forward is really dependent upon removal. Um, most obviously, it's dependent upon Indian removal because the lands that the U.S. government is imagining as a great fund um, are native lands. The lands that people are kind of flocking to from the east um, going to the west are still native lands. Um, so, you know, the kind of counter story was always um, that free movement was dependent upon removal. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, I think that that's the, you know, see the sort of flip side, as you, as you point out, maybe even expand on that a little bit. I think that if free movement is central to American history, I mean, removal becomes, I think you make the strong case that removal is just a central, right? That removal and nation building uh, are are absolutely t tied together. And so, you know, I guess, could you expand upon that and then to, to think about some of the different ways in which, because you have kind of like different categories of, of removal, could you sort of expand upon that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, removal is absolutely central to the, the state building project um, because the U.S. government is kind of imagining taking these spaces and making and kind of integrating them into the U.S., by moving native people out and creating these kind of neat states. Um, and so, you know, particularly in the 19th, the early 19th century, you see this language about like creating firm borders um, around states and, uh, you know, making things kind of more, seem more orderly. Um, and that's, that's the kind of language that they're using. And what they're imagining is um, the replacement of native peoples with white settlers. Um, so this is, you know, kind of laced throughout the, early national period is this language from the federal government about um, order, orderly states and how to make that happen swiftly. One of the interesting things about the middle states is just that, um, you know, that this is a place where, you know, this happens really, really quickly. So the, by the middle states, I mean, um, Virginia, Pennsylvania, all these kind of states that are bordering the Ohio River, Virginia, Pennsylvania, um, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and, um, you know, this is a place where the U.S. federal government is expending a lot of resources to move Native peoples out and to create new states. Um, they try a lot of different tactics. So, you know, certainly um, foremost among them is making war. So the U.S. Um, is sending in, an, you know, military expeditions constantly throughout the post-war period, um, beginning immediately in the 1780s. There's there are a bunch of kind of conflicts, military conflicts and clashes. Um, in the Ohio country, this uh, reaches its kind of peak in the early 1790s when, um, you know, the U.S. government is battling over what's now Ohio um, with the United Indian Nations, which is a kind of vast confederacy of Native peoples who are um, trying to counter U.S. aggression. So certainly one tactic of removal in this time period is war making. Um, the U.S. government is sending in armies to, to take the land by force. Another tactic is um, treaty making. So kind of accompanying um, war making is are these diplomatic efforts that are um, like in a lot of cases, kind of duplicitous, um, or in most cases, duplicitous, because Native peoples are so clear that they don't want to give up the lands that are now Ohio, um, that the, they imagine the Ohio country as this kind of country in common, um, that they're going to keep for themselves as a buffer against U.S. aggression and U.S. settlement. So they really are envisioning this as, um, you know, like this country held in common that's going to protect them from this wave of people who are moving from east to west. Um, 
nevertheless, the U.S. is constantly coming to the United Indian Nations um, in the 1780s and the 1790s, asking, saying first that they had won their lands by conquest in the revolution um, because Native peoples hadn't been invited to the peace that ended the American Revolution. Um, the U.S. government's argument was that um, they were a conquered people, and so they had no rights to those lands, that they had been, basically been traded away by the British to the United States at, at the end of the war, um, and that you know, Native peoples had no kind of part in that piece and thus no rights to land. Um, and then later, their kind of diplomatic um, efforts center on purchasing land. So the U.S. government goes in and says, okay, um, we understand you're not a conquered people. Our military efforts and our diplomatic efforts aren't working here. Um, instead, you know, can you, we'd like to purchase these lands. And of course, you know, the United Indian Nations rebuffs that too, because they're really holding firm against U.S. expansion. And then later, they they kind of turn to other um, other tactics, uh, like land allotments, so kind of breaking down land into individual parcels um, in order to um, seize it more quickly over generations. Um, you know, they turn to um, land exchange, so the exchange of um, Eastern Native lands for Western, for Western Native lands. Um, and trying to kind of remove people specifically beyond the Mississippi River. So the tactics change over the time, but really this focus on removal does not. Yeah. Well, and and then, you know, can we, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about is, is indigenous removal. How does African-American removal and colonization and these sorts of things then fit into this larger project? Yeah. So in the book, I kind of separate out these stories um, and then bring them together towards the end in order to recognize that they're, they're um, you know, the language is common and the project is common, but they also have specific kind of, uh, there, there are specifics that are very different, right? There are specific situations that are very different. So colonization looks a little bit different, but um, nonetheless, the focus is still on removing free African-Americans from the nation for a variety of reasons, depending on who the proponent was of colonization. So, um, you know, Virginia slaveholders are surprisingly embracing colonization a lot in the early national period as an accompaniment to freedom um, because they imagine that free African-Americans who are in the state might kind of challenge um, slaveholding and, and the kind of racial order of the South. Mid-Atlantic Quakers are also embracing colonizations, colonization, but for different reasons. They are um, abolitionists who hope that colonization might actually convince other people to um, embrace African-American freedom. So, you know, in, in all of these cases, people are, are taking on the mantle of colonization, but for kind of different political reasons. But in every case, it involves sending free people beyond the United States, whether that is to um, kind of Western territories, uh, like, again, this kind of imagined um, space, um, beyond the Trans-Appalachian Mountains or um, beyond the Mississippi River, or, um, you know, later they really start to focus on West Africa. So um, following along with the British project of colonizing free people in Sierra Leone, um, they, you know, colonizationists in the United States start to take that model and um, they focus in on West Africa in particular. And that is the origins of um, the American Colonization Society, um, which is this, you know, kind of robust um, movement to send people to a free colony on the West Coast of Africa that they called Liberia. Right. 
So, you know, the, the other side of the book, of course, is the right to remain, right? The resistance that takes place. How, how do, you know, both African-American communities and indigenous communities articulate that resistance? And, you know, and I guess the other question is to what success, right? I mean, I, the last podcast I did was with Steve Kantoritz about on his recent book about the Ho-Chunk, which is a, you know, conditional victory in a sense, um, in that at least some members of that tribe do end up figuring out ways to remain in their homeland in Wisconsin. So c- can you kind of expand on that, the, 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 the strategies and success rates of resistance? Yeah, so I'll speak first to the indigenous story because that's where we started. Um, so in the Ohio Valley, this place that I was focused on in the book, um, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, the kind of lower, this, um, this space, uh, people do, you know, particularly in the 1790s, what is amazing about that story is that they are so successful at countering the U.S. um, and kind of dictating terms diplomatically because um, they're very successful for a time militarily. But things start to shift really quickly um, because the kind of tidal weight of of white migrants is so large um, because the U.S. government is pouring money into um, taking over this space. So like you know, in the mid mid 1790s, um, this war against Native peoples in that region is taking up the majority of the federal budget. So they're really just kind of pouring everything that they've got into making sure that that space will will become this kind of series of states. Um, but for a time, they are really successful. And um, even when removal efforts really ramp up after, you know, Ohio becomes a state and then Indiana and Illinois um, in the 18 teens, um, a bit later, um, even then, people do manage to secure the power to remain um, on reserves for a time, um, and then later through private land allotments. Um, so there are some elite Miami leaders, for example, who managed to remain um, on private land allotments in the region. And then other people, you know, kind of stay under the radar um, as well and uh, and remain despite removal. Oh. Um, and in terms of African-American story, the, um, you know, in the time period that I was looking at, the story is a little bit less collective and more, um, you know, the story that I was telling was more about individual efforts. And so the, um, the petitions that I started with were really these kind of legal efforts that people were making to remain. So approaching the state legislature and later when the law changes, they start approaching the county courts as well and, and trying to get these kind of individual, um, you know, allowances to stay in the state. Um, and, you know, but a lot of people weren't able to evade that either. So there are many people who stayed um, and were able to stay either through those like, like kind of allowances, exceptions, or again, by kind of staying under the radar and um, staying out of the eye of the courts or their neighbors um, and and um, staying in their communities. But then there are a lot of people who are forced to leave um, and either, you know, did that on their own volition and chose their destination. Or interestingly, there were um, a lot of Virginia slaveholders and North Carolina slaveholders too, who um, purchased land for people in the Midwest and actually sent them there after emancipation. So, you know, it's a, it's a kind of complicated story. Um, But one that I think is really interesting because it produced this kind of counter archive that shows us what, what home meant to people and what the right to remain meant to people in an era when their rights were being really restricted as free people um, in the South and later in the Midwest. Yeah. Well, you know, um, 
you know, one, one, you know, we don't want to keep you too much longer here. Um, so I, I want to kind of close by asking a couple more, maybe theoretical questions or just questions in, in terms of historical interpretation and maybe popular historical memory. Um, you know, I teach the civil war course, uh, here at the university of Rhode Island. And I've talked to other people about this too, where, you know, one of the things that's kind of, um, you, you have to really push on, I think is, an idea of American racial history that a lot of Northerners hold pretty dear that it's a kind of like North good, South bad, right? That, you know, that, that, you know, not only in terms of slavery, um, but in terms of, of Indian removal, right? Because, you know, the Cherokees are, are in Georgia, right? And in Tennessee. And so, you know, I, I think that one of the things that, you know, I certainly do, and I'm teaching that class this semester is to really, uh, push back on these ideas and really talk about try to talk about race and it's more um, uh, in a more holistic view. And I think your book does a really great job about that. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, if you have thoughts on kind of the ways in which race and region are interpreted in this country um, and maybe the ways in which your book kind of pushes back on this and really demonstrates that at least in, in the middle states, you know, th this really is a a project in which the Mason-Dixon line is not the, the the critical boundary here. Yeah, it's really not at all. I mean, one of the things that I was trying to do, um, you know, is is kind of trouble that line between North and South by following these states that are actually on either side of that boundary um, and showing how policies that get made in a place like Virginia end up, um, you know, making kind of legal changes or policy changes in other states that are neighboring to the north. So when Virginia, for example, creates this law that, you know, says that free people have to leave after emancipation, their immediate neighbors, um, not just in the southern states, but also in the northern states, also pass similar um, kind of restrictions on black settlement, which is absolutely a response to what Virginia is doing. Yep. So it's, you know, I think it does kind of examples like that do trouble our expectations of north versus south because it's clear that racism is thriving in, um, you know, what's now the Midwest, for example. Um, and even though that's a quote unquote Northern space, you know, it really doesn't matter. We're seeing the same, um, you know, tactics of Indian removal being used against the Cherokees that are, that the federal government is then turning around and using against um, Northern native peoples too. Right. Well, and, and then, you know, at a, you know, another way of kind of putting this, I think is, you know, I, I'm originally from Oregon. Right. And so, uh, you know, in the popular memory, um, you know, at least among people who have some knowledge of these things, Oregon has a particularly troubled racial history because of the exclusion of African-Americans upon statehood in 1859. And, you know, I, I, I kind of get my backup about that a little bit, not because I'm defending my home state, which God knows I'm not. I mean, Oregon remains white paradise America then and, and now, really. In many, many ways, but rather the ubiquity of exclusion of African-Americans in uh, relatively new states. Right. I mean, you know, and as you point out, um, these Midwestern what today we call Midwestern states are also doing this. Right. That, that, that exclusion is increasingly a national project rather than just this like monster state out in Oregon. Yeah, I think that's such a great way of putting it, that it's a national project. I mean, one fascinating thing is like with these restriction laws, even Pennsylvania, which was kind of the epicenter of abolitionism, of black freedom struggles and black civil rights struggles, 
it also considers one of these restrictive immigration laws keeping free African-Americans out in yep. the 18-teens. So, you know, it's everywhere that this is happening. Yep. And, and then I guess the last question I'll ask you here is, is another kind of historical interpretation question. Because, you know, you, you kind of close the book and the conclusion and you're talking about, uh, you know, Indian Removal Act. Um, and, you know, I mean, I write for these spaces that are you know, pretty liberal spaces, right? And I think one of the things as a historian, at least for me, I don't know if it's, you know, normal, but, or, or, or everybody does this, maybe, maybe they do, but, you know, I get really um, um, impatient, I guess, with pat historical narratives that kind of like the Oregon story uh, that serve to sort of excuse or, or, or not excuse, but like channel our nation's problematic past in ways that can blame a, a state or a person or a region or something and then sort of like shunt away the hard conversations that we need to have about race today. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, when we're talking about removal in America, um, this naturally is the figure of Andrew Jackson and, you know, um, and the ways in which Andrew Jackson gets kind of, um, not even debated today, right. Cause he's seen now as a sort of monstrous figure, um, by a lot of people. And I'm not going to dispute that. I mean, Andrew Jackson's a very problematic human being in many, many ways. But again, um, you know, the ways in which we think of indigenous removal is a truly national project, right? I mean, Van Buren follows it up, right? I mean, you know, and he's from New York. Um, and so I, I, I guess, I guess this is a really circuitous way of, of asking you to kind of close here by thinking about how we as a nation need to be considering our legacies of indigenous removal as a national project, both in terms of historical memory and then it's, it's, you know, longer term implications for the present. So that's a really big question, but I'm going to throw it out of shit. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're, what you're saying about removal being a national project makes me think about space, but then there's also the time question, which I think follows along with it, that, you know, one of the points of the book was to say, like, this isn't just something that happens in the 1830s. This isn't just something that happens under Jackson. If you read an American history textbook, at least the ones that I was forced to read in high school, you might, wonderful textbooks, by the way, but you might think that, that this is just a kind of, you know, moment in time. But if we move beyond that kind of textbook version, like the really short um, crystallized version of U.S. history, we can see that removal is kind of baked into the way that um, you know, people are thinking about the nation from the beginning, that removal was always there, racialized exclusion was always there. Um, and then it takes different forms over time. But one of the re reasons that um, Jacksonian annual removal was so um, was so devastating was because these things had been kind of tried before. And the same with colonization, which, you know, really takes off with the ACS um, by the 1820s, but had, you know, these ideas had really been there before of, of racial exclusion and took many different forms. And I think this goes, you know, we can make a broad sweep to the present and say, you know, these projects, uh, these kind of colonial projects are still ongoing for many people. They're, they still feel, um, you know, the persistence of exclusion and removal in the present as well. Um, so it's not, you know, this isn't just a moment in time. Um, it's a kind of process that has made a long sweep up through the present. 
All right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I completely agree. And I, I really appreciate the book. Um, and uh, I want to thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Again, we've been talking to Samantha Seeley from the University of Richmond um, about her book, Race Removal and the Right to Remain, Migration and the Making of the United States. And hopefully uh, all of you go out and buy that book. We'll be back soon with another edition of the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for listening to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast. We would like to thank Elizabeth Nelson of The Paranoid Style for supplying as our intro and outro music, I'd Bet My Lands and Titles, a track on the album For Executive Meeting. If you would like to support the Lawyers, Guns, and Money podcast or any other aspect of the Lawyers, Guns, and Money project, please visit us at www.patreon.com slash lawyersgunsandmoney or donate at the PayPal link on the website. Thank you. Thank you.